Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. doing our best to answer a lot of the questions as we went through. Um, and what we're going to do now is um, take some of those questions that we didn't get to or that we thought were worthy of a little more discussion and uh, answer those live um, by posting. I've got some slides up here with some of those questions and uh, we can address them as between the panelists. So. <clears throat> Um, this one, uh, I think, Susan, you were going to address the, the first one here. Uh, Deb, yes, I think it would be best to keep them off on leave. And then if you need to place them on an, on, uh, on a layoff in order to bring them back um, as your business ramps up, I think that that's the best plan. Yep. And uh, so to all our attendees, please... Uh, bear with us while we try to adjust and answer these things in real time. Um, this one, Jacob, I think is probably directed toward you. And I, I apologize if you did cover it, I might've missed it, but certainly something that I can answer. Um, so maybe if you can just address that one quickly, because I don't know. Sure, yeah. Um, unfortunately, the, you're, uh, you're absolutely right whoever asked this question. Uh, they've, uh, they seem to have focused on uh, people who are being paid uh, salary and all of the, uh, the incentives, the SIBA and the wage subsidies are all for salary and not for people who were paid dividends. Uh, the, only, the only thing right now is if uh, the SERBs, uh, the, the $2,000 a month payment, uh, they have one of the criteria for the SERB is that you have to have $5,000 of uh, it used to be employment or self-employment income in either 2019 or in the previous 12 months. Uh, they've now included non-eligible dividends in that uh, in that uh, test. So if you were paid dividends last year and now you're out of work uh, or you're earning less than a thousand dollars personally through uh, in the four-week period, uh, you should qualify for the the emergency uh, two thousand dollars a month payment. Um, there is some ambiguity there as to if you're incorporated, well, how do you know how much you're really earning personally? Uh, I, I would think the way we're kind of interpreting it right now without legislation being released on it is uh, if you're kind of in your corporation, if you're netting less than $1,000 that you take out of the company as a dividend, then you're not earning more than $1,000 and you should be okay. Uh, but again, we're, it is speculation because they haven't updated the legislation on to account for these dividends. So uh, it is a bit of a gray area at this point. Thank you. So here are a couple of related questions. Again, Jacob, sorry to keep you uh, on the hot seat here, but um, it's questions about the dates and the periods. Um, and I know you did cover some of this, but people were asking for some clarification. Um, again, apologize if you if you covered it, but uh, what uh, what can we tell people when they're asking about how the periods apply and what specifically uh, they're referencing when they talk about those dates? 
so the um, so if you were paid if you paid someone from March 15th to 27th and then laid them off until April 13th uh, you would not have there would be a period of 14 consecutive days where you did not pay them uh, so you would not qualify for that the period number one uh, you wouldn't be able to claim the, the wage subsidy uh, because there was that break in employment if you, if you weren't paying them. Uh, in terms of the dates for the C, the, the Qs, uh, so it's amounts paid in respect of the week. So kind of March 15th, the first week, it's whatever you paid them for that week. It doesn't matter that it was uh, paid later. Uh, the amount just has to be paid before June 6th. That's the, uh, the cutoff. Uh, so if you're if you do a monthly payroll or every two week payroll, you have to look at just what you're paying them for each specific week, and the calculation is done for every every week. Thank you for that. Uh, moving on to the next one. So, Susan, this is the one that <laughs> that I think you thought was coming before. Um, a, a great question. Thanks, Janet, for sending that in. And I know it's something that we've been dealing with uh, in our firm with our various healthcare provider clients. Sure. Uh, thanks for the question, Janet. So, yes, we have had a lot of questions about the uh, daycare that's being provided for essential service, uh, particularly frontline healthcare providers. Uh, and it's a question that sort of intersects with the uh, family status discrimination uh, grounds under the Ontario Human Rights Code. Uh, so our advice to clients is that if an employee uh, is claiming that they need a leave of absence because they don't have daycare options, uh, but there are daycare options available that they just don't particularly like, uh, that the employer's position should be that unless they can fit themselves within the leave of absence provisions, or there is a, a, a bona fide family status issue uh, that they should be accessing that daycare. Uh, the other area this comes up uh, a lot or has been coming up a lot is in respect of uh, people who may, uh, who may want to stay home, um, but they do have other options. Uh, for example, their, their uh, spouse is also staying at home, um, but the spouse would prefer not to have to look after the children and so we've been getting a lot of questions as well as to whether or not they fall under the leave of absence provisions when what you're talking about is really a preference as opposed to uh, an emergency situation so that's advice we've been given we've been giving employers uh, we haven't received any grievances yet um, and i think really workplace parties are trying to work through this um, but we do not believe that if an employee has daycare available that they can simply choose not to avail themselves of that and go under the leave of absence provision unless they otherwise would qualify for you know the other reasons or the other uh, qualifying provisions in those emergency uh, protected leaves thanks susan and now uh, we'll see i don't remember what's coming next so let's check it out um, oh, Jacob, back to you. It's, it's questions, two uh, sem somewhat related questions about uh, subcontractors. So uh, Monique and Anita, thank you for sending those in. And uh, Jacob, I'll give you a chance to read them and see what, uh, what you can tell us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think as I 
one thing I mentioned that unfortunately with subcontractors, so if you're, if they are not an employee, so you're not issuing them a T4, uh, this, the wage subsidy does not apply to contractors. Uh, so un unfortunately, as of right now, they are out of, out of luck in terms of claiming any sort of subsidy for contractor payments. Uh, the second question, so in terms of the definition of revenue, um, revenue is uh, it's kind of your, your normal operating revenues. So I would think the only way you'd be able to deduct subcontractor payments from the revenues is if, if your normal accounting method allowed you to do that. So maybe you're acting as an agent, so you only, you only use, uh, you record your revenues on a net basis. But uh, I think unless you have a, a reasonable argument or you've always been doing that for your accounting and it, and it makes sense for your type of business, uh, the subcontractor expense would not decrease your revenues. So I'd say in most cases, you cannot deduct the, the subcontractor, expense, subcontractor expense. You'd have to look at your gross revenues coming in. Jacob, another interesting question came in, maybe related, and sorry, Kelsey, you may already have this in your queue. What about temporary workers that are hired through a temporary agency? Yeah, so I, I touched on that one in my, my presentation that un unfortunately, again, usually you're paying the temp agency as a contractor. So the person who's actually paying the temp agency doesn't get any relief from the wage subsidy. And then on the temp agency side, uh, there is some ambigu ambiguity as to whether or not they're allowed to claim the subsidy. So it would be something where those employers need to probably have a conversation with their temp agency and see what makes the most sense from a business perspective. But uh, they're not going, they're not going to be able to claim it the subsidy themselves. And the temp agency, see, even if they are entitled to claim the subsidy. Uh, I don't think there's any, there's no obligation from a tax perspective for them to pass on those savings to the employers. So it is an interesting situation and I think it does have to be dealt with on a case by case basis with uh, who you're working with. Thank you. Thanks Mike for uh, bringing those to our attention as well. Um, this one and one other one that I'll ask as a follow up. Jacob, subplans and their effect with respect to the wage subsidy. Um, I know a lot of our employers out there have subplans in place or uh, moved to amend ones that they did have in place or even some um, applied ahead of time thinking that um, they'd be able to top up employees who had to stop due to this COVID-19 pandemic, whether by order or otherwise. And then all of a sudden things got flipped when uh, when the government announced that people would automatically be converted to the CERB. Um, what, uh, we have some, some other thoughts with respect to subplans, but what can you tell us about, uh, about subplan payments specifically, if anything? Yeah, unfortunately with that one, I've had this question before. I, I don't have an answer for that right now. Um, I know from what I've read with through various law firms and everything, uh, it's um, there's no real guidance on the interaction between CERB and the subplan right now. Uh, as, as far as I'm aware, I'm not an expert on the, the subplans. Um, given this, the, the definition of 
the wage subsidy, if you're looking at it from that perspective, um, the uh, it, I don't think being on a sub plan should stop you from claiming the wage subsidy because it's not specifically if there's a, the work sharing reduces it, but not the sub plan. Uh, so as long as you meet all the criteria in the legislation, uh, you should be able to claim it. I, I proceed with caution and get some advice on that before doing it. I think uh, that's more a more complicated situation that I, I'm not sure on, off the top of my head on that one. Sure, and as I said, this is this is truly the hot seat because we're uh, we're asking these questions on the fly. Um, the related one to that that we've gotten a lot of, and I think it has been frustrating for a lot of employers and for um, us as we advise employers is um, where employees are accessing the CERB. There's no mechanism to top the, top up that wage the way there would be uh, uh, with a normal sub plan, is there? Right. As of right now, there's not. So, if, yeah, if you're if you're getting the serve and then you start topping the person up under this under the previous sub plan, you're technically not eligible for serve anymore if you're topping up more than more than a thousand dollars. So if you might get the wage subsidy, uh, but the I think the serve eligibility becomes impacted because they haven't specifically considered this interaction right now. Yeah. That that's uh, that's where we've been coming at this one as well. Um, Mike, here's one for you. I don't have it on a slide yet, but uh, I can't recall um, if we address this. Um, I know you addressed it in another talk you gave. Do employees build up vacation time when they're being paid and not working? Kelsey, I think you addressed that one on a talk we gave. So I'll, I'm going to throw it back to you. Well, I knew we talked about it at least. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing in any operation of statute or otherwise that uh, would suggest that employees in general um, don't accrue vacation pay while they are being paid, regardless of whether they're working or not. Um, vacation pay is paid on wages earned and um, you know the the interesting questions arise when we talk about the accrual of vacation separately from vacation pay and and how employees earn that and how it's paid out um, and that really does require specific advice that uh, is dependent upon your specific situation and the language in your employment agreements vacation policies and or a collective agreement um, in general, you should be definitely, as an employer, aware and alive to the fact that you are going to be liable for vacation pay, how exactly uh, that plays out while being on a paid leave um, is going to depend on, on those specifics that I mentioned. So thanks, Mike. I, I, yeah, as well, I started I, talking about it, I remembered it. Yeah, where I can jump in is... And to kind of piggyback on what Jacob was saying earlier about what remuneration is eligible for the CEWS, it includes remuneration to employees uh, on which remittances and deductions have to be paid to the receiver general. Uh, that, and Jacob can correct me if I'm wrong, but that would include if vacation pay is paid during the appropriate time, uh, that could possibly be subsidized. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Susan. Oh. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, the other thing about vacation is, um, and I think Kelsey, you were you were uh, explaining this, is that there are two separate benefits. There's vacation time, and then there's vacation pay. And we do know that under all of these protected leaves, vacation time continues to accrue during the protected leave. So it may be that employees will be entitled to vacation time uh, when they come back. Uh, and then, uh, as Kelsey said, whether they're entitled to vacation pay will depend on what your vacation language is like, uh, what your vacation policies are like. And so that would be something that we'd have to answer separately depending on the nature of your, of your policy. So uh, Susan, I, I hope this isn't as much of a surprise to you as the first one I asked you because um, but we've been getting a few questions about ROEs. Um, and at the beginning of this whole process, we didn't have to, um, or not we, but employees applying for the CERB at the start didn't have to do anything about an ROE. And then last week, um, it got added into the CERB application to for the employee uh, who's applying to answer whether or not they already had an ROE, whether they were going to get one and, and confirm that they had one. Um, have you dealt with yet any instances of ROEs? Some of the questions we're getting are, um, you know, if, if we're paying an employee, what do we say on an ROE? Um, and do we still have to provide one? So if you're paying an employee, I'm assuming that's because they're either working or they're off on leave and you're paying them. Um, I don't know why they would be applying serve benefits in those circumstances um, so I don't know why you would um, provide the ROE to them uh, we have had questions about how to code ROEs when people are choosing to be off even though there is work and the employer is not requiring them to be at work um, so we've been, you know, we've been advising employers to code those as a leave of absence as opposed to an illness or a shortage of work. And how that will shake out in terms of the employee's entitlement to serve that remains to be seen. Um, I'm trying to think of other circumstances where the ROE has come up. And other panelists, feel free to jump in. I'm just trying to imagine circumstances where you would be continuing to pay people and still be issuing an ROE. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree with you on that, Susan, that um, if, if they're still being paid, there's no need for an ROE. I think the, the confusion around the whole ROE um, is is perhaps with respect to the CERB and not needing it before. Um, I just saw it pop up that they're talking perhaps about an ROE for reduced work hours if, uh, if an employer needs to issue one for that purpose. Um, Mike, I see you nodding your head. Go ahead. Well, that, that's what I was going to say, Kelsey, if the earnings are reduced to enough of a, a degree um, that a person may qualify for the CERP, but there is an interruption in earnings, um, it could be possible that a record of employment uh, is required in those circumstances. That was the last one that I got to on the slides. Um, it is approaching 2.30, so that may be a good place to end. And I apologize, of course, that we didn't get to all of the questions here but uh you know we really appreciate everybody's attendance engagement and participation and uh certainly you know 
these are not easy times, whether you're an employer, employee, or uh, certainly as a person as well. And we, uh, we certainly wish everybody out there um, good days and safe days as we deal with this thing for uh, in the days and weeks to come. We will be posting, as I said, uh, this everywhere we can. And um, you should receive a follow-up email with any of the information about accessing the, the presentation and so on. Um, and uh, in the meantime, if you have any questions, of course, please don't hesitate to contact any of us directly, uh, whether it be the team at CC Partners or Jacob and, and his team at MNP. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate that. And certainly uh, I know our attendees were, uh, were very appreciative of we're getting a lot of the, um, a lot of feedback already. So really appreciate that. There's everybody as we say goodbye. And uh, thank you all and uh, have a great day. Great, thanks a lot. Thanks, Kelsey. My pleasure.